Um, also today, uh, Dwayne is away. Uh, so is Marcio and Close. He's one of the leaders for the Karen Church. Although you might actually see them. Because by being away, Dwayne and Marcio are both speaking at a church in Buffalo today. But they're doing it over the internet. And so they're actually both in their offices just around the corner here. Uh, Dwayne's also speaking at Maple Hill Baptist Church. So he's doing two services right now. And he's in his office, and he's doing it by Zoom, and he has pre-recorded some messages for them. And then they're doing a question and answer, and so he's doing that. Uh, the chapel down in Buffalo, it's their mission Sunday, and so they've asked Marcio and uh, Close to participate. They have sort of an international flavor. They're both going to be praying during their service in uh, Portuguese and uh, Karen. I assume Marcio's doing the Portuguese side. Close will look after the uh, Karen language. So they're doing some things like that. So it's just fascinating days that we're able to uh, gather like this, and they're gathered down in their offices or out in their offices, and we are in here together today. And it's my privilege to get to uh, talk to you today and take you into the book of Philippians. We're doing that because uh, you know our regular series that Dwayne's been taking us through is the book of Colossians. And as we're in that, we're coming and completing a prayer, and Dwayne has been working in that letter, and I looked at the passage, and I thought, oh, that's a fantastic passage, and Dwayne said, I really want to preach it, though. No offense, but I want to preach that passage, so you need to do something else. And so I, of course, said, just tell me what you think would fit, and I get to preach Philippians 2, which is one of my, the book of Ephesians and Philippians. It, it's hard to have favorites in Scripture, but they're, they're books, they're letters that I go back to a lot. In fact, I'm having trouble here because that's my pages of Philippians chapter 2. It's coming out of my Bible. I haven't finished it yet. And it's just one of those passages that's great to go back to time and again. And so today we get to, uh, to look at these passages together. And so as we're getting settled again now, hopefully kids are downstairs and you're back in your chairs. Let's just pause and pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege that it is to meet. Thank you that you have given us this incredible place and that every week uh, I am astounded as we gather together at this incredible gift that you have given to us. And Father, may we appreciate it. And though we are distant somewhat, we are still, we're full. We're able to be here, we're able to gather, and our hearts are somehow quickened in a special way when your spirit unites us like this. Worship, worship is that collective sense of gathering, Father, and it's, it's unique when your spirit unites us this way. And I pray that as we begin to look at your word now, that it would be your spirit who teaches us, that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts in fresh ways as we read words that might be very familiar to some, for others they may kind of be brand new. But for whoever we are here this morning, would you take your word, apply it in fresh ways to our hearts, that we might understand your presence, that we might understand the things that you have for us in this life. Thank you for this in Christ's name. As I said, this is one of my favorite kind of passages, just to look at this prayer, particularly of Paul's, or this hymn, as some would call it, in Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to encourage you because we don't have anything on the screen this morning and I didn't get notes out to you, uh, get your Bibles out. So a lot of you bring your Bibles. You can open them up there now. Uh, get your smartphones out this morning. 
Turn to Philippians 2 on your Bible apps. I hope you've got a Bible app on your smartphone. Incredible technology that we're able to use. Um, I would also suggest, as we, we're going through some of these verses, if you've got your smartphone on, this is a helpful passage to look at some different translations. Uh, the words that Paul uses here are very particular, and you can see some of the nuances of that through some different translations. So find your way to uh, chapter 2, and uh, I'll just kind of keep introducing a little bit here for you. As I thought about this passage today and I was reading and reflecting on it, I was reminded of a message by a man by the name of Dan Spader. Dan Spader's in the States. He uh, began, he was the founder of an organization called um, Sun Life. Sun Life's the insurance company. Um, somebody help me. Sun, oh well, go look it up later. <clears throat> It'll come to you in a minute. Anyway, he founded this youth organization which has grown exponentially. And uh, it's just been an incredible impact around the world. And it's a true discipleship movement. And as he started that, he spoke at a conference that we had a couple of years ago and used this passage. And as he used it, uh, it's just struck me a number of times, and I've used a number of his uh, quotes and just some of his direction. And so I went back there and listened to it again this morning. It was very helpful again just to kind of quicken my heart. And he started his message with a very simple question. And the question is the same that I'll pose to you this morning. And the question is simply this, how real is your Jesus? How real is your Jesus? It's a very important question for us because as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to have a sense of who Jesus is. He's at the heart. He's at the he, he, is, he is the one that we follow. He's the establisher of our faith. It's in him that we put our faith in. And as you begin to answer that question and to ponder it, and you spend some time with it, it leads you into just a whole lot of, I would suggest, very deep waters. Because the person of Jesus is not just a simple person. Jesus, as he gets presented in Scripture, we, of course, understand that he's a teacher, he's a religious leader, Others, though, down through history have called him a nutcase, a rebel. And then, of course, there is the whole sense of he is son of God, he is son of man. He is the God-man, God incarnate, come to walk this earth among us. And that's what our passage today focuses on. And Spader, in his message, and I want to start here this morning, is that the first part of Jesus' ministry and his walk on earth is he was calling his disciples to him. As you read through the gospel accounts, you recognize that there is a movement of understanding about who Jesus is. And one of the first components or the first thing that Jesus needed to do with his disciples was to help them to a place of understanding who he was. In Matthew's gospel, and it gets repeated in all three of the gospels, not in John, but the story of Jesus stilling the storm on the waters. And it's followed up by Jesus going into the Gennesenes, and he heals the demoniac man. And those two stories, back to back in the Gospels, Jesus is accomplishing things and doing things. In the storm, it's washing over the boat, and they're scared, and they're afraid. And they say, Jesus, don't you care? And he stands up in the middle of the storm, and he says, be quiet, storm. Still. The waters and the wind and the waves stop. And with the demoniac who's in the tomb cutting himself and the 
causing great fear for all that Jesus goes to him and it's the story of the pigs and they go down over them and they get they get uh, trampled over the herd as Jesus cast and the legion of demons moves from the man into the pigs and they go down into the waters. And in both those cases, the responses of the people are remarkable where they basically pause and they say, what kind of man is this? Who is this man, they ask. Jesus, who are you? I mean, we have moments like that to lesser degrees in our own lives where somebody does something or says something, you kind of look at them and go, like, who are you? Like, where would that come from? And I experience that with my grandkids now. Just last night, we were at dinner with them, and my, my uh, one grandson, he's six, something like that. I'm not great with ages. How old, honey? Is he eight? Luke. Eight. Luke's eight. So we're sitting there and having, uh, it was actually a birthday party, and it's kind of wrapping up, and he's sitting at the end of the table, and all of a sudden, in a very commanding voice, he says, so, Grandpa, you kind of, oh, Luke, what's, you know, it's a pronouncement is going to be coming. He's like, I, I guess we're going to see you again tomorrow, aren't we? And you kind of go, yeah, that's, that's right. And you're kind of just like, and that was kind of like, so, and he's like, well, that's it, just... You're just kind of like, okay, like where'd that voice come from? Where'd that kind of commanding spirit come from for that moment? Who are you? This little guy that's developing and changing, right? We discover things about people. They cause us to pause. And that's what the disciples experienced in this moment, but like a thousand times more. I mean, they looked at Jesus and said, what kind of man? that you speak to the waves, that you speak to demonic forces, and it changes. The storm stills. Who are you? Who is this man? It gets repeated again in his hometown. We're told in Matthew 13 that he goes, and as he goes into his hometown, he goes into the synagogue, and he does some teaching there. And he does some teaching, and it says that, their, the response of the crowd was, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? And then in the discussion among themselves, they say, where did this come from? Because isn't this the carpenter's son? You know, we know him. He grew up around here. Joseph's his dad. He's the carpenter that's spent 30 years now working on our tables and our chairs. He's the guy that's done the thatching maybe on our roofs. You know, he's been a part of the neighborhood. This is the carpenter's son. And isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't they all here? And look, at here's his sisters too. You start adding that up. Jesus was a family of about nine. He had seven siblings. Right? And they're saying, we know this guy. We saw him grow up from being a baby and a child and grew up through his teens came into his working life and career. And yet here he stands and he teaches in a way that astonishes and amazes us. And people start looking at him and go, what kind of man is this? He has wisdom. He has an understanding. He has solutions. He has power. He has insight. And I would suggest that for any follower of Jesus, we come to that moment with Jesus. We're suddenly in a very personal way, we, we start to say, who is he? 
look at what he's done, and look what he teaches, and look at the impact that he's having on others around me. Could he have that part in my life? And we come to a moment of saying that we understand his power, his insight, his compassion, how he identifies with us. And we pause and we say, who is this man? And we begin to ask ourselves that question that Spader starts, that how real is our Jesus? Because that's when he becomes real to us. And it's that cultivating of our own spirits and our hearts with him is all about the relationship that we enjoy with him. There is a difference in that story with, the, with his hometown, though. Because even though they asked that question and said, where did this guy get that kind of teaching? It says at the end of that little account that they took offense at him. When they looked at Jesus and thought those kind of thoughts, they took offense at him. They said, we can't accept this. Somehow, Jesus, you're rubbing us the wrong way. You offend us by what you're teaching and by what you're saying. And because we've seen who you are, we refuse to believe that you are anything more than what our minds and our capacity to understand will allow us to go to. Shut them down. That's what everyone would do. Jesus gets presented in this world and in this life and his gospel is there for all. And we either say, who is this man? Or we get offended. Walk away. The world walks away. And so again, this morning, as we begin to think about who Jesus is and what kind of man he is, I suggest to you that my encouragement is allow God's spirit to open your heart so that you begin to appreciate in the fullness of his glory and his and his uh, majesty, who he is. And if there's that voice that causes you to ponder and wonder, maybe take offense, you need to cry out and in your heart say, Jesus, show me a different way. Show me something fresh that I can understand what this church and these people that surround me are all about who come week after week and in this neighborhood have a testimony that Jesus is the one who can change them. That Jesus is the one who enters into hearts and lives and makes a difference. And so as we do that, we go into Philippians chapter 2, a passage that gets presented for us. There's my, there's my pages, fell out. This passage that gets presented for us as just a recognition and a picture of who Jesus is for us. So Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 5. And in verse 5, Paul teaches the people or calls them. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You should have this kind of mindset. In your relationship with each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus has. And I'll prepare you for where he's going. You probably already picked up a little bit. Because as Paul starts to talk about this, and we'll come back to this whole idea of have the same mindset as Christ, He's going to introduce to us this glimpse of what makes Jesus tick, who he is at his core. And where he's going is to the heart of incarnation. God wrapped up in human form. One writer uh, has said this about this opening couple of senses, verses 6 through 8. He said, in displaying the mind of Christ, Paul begins with one of those sublime sentences whose essential intent and meaning seem clear as can be yet whose parts are full of mystery and wonder. I think that's a great description of 
what we're going to read in two minutes. You know, it's, it's very clear. It's very simple on one level. And yet, if you begin to explore who Jesus is, there is a mystery and there is a wonder, and there's that which can't be explained. It's God wrapped up in humanity, fully God and fully human. Theological term, the hypostatic union. God and man in one. Fully God, fully man. Not that Jesus gave up anything. He still is God, but he takes on man and he exists in this one person in the fullness of both God, deity, humanity. Full of mystery and wonder. And in verses 6 through 11, in what some call a hymn, some call that Paul either wrote this hymn or he picked up a hymn that was being sung in the church at the time about who Jesus is. Whatever, whatever you want to take in that, you understand there's a very concise structure to what we're going to read in verses 6 through 11. And in that structure, there's really three parts. In verses 6 and 7, it's the mindset of Jesus as God in his deity. In verses 8, in verse 8, it's the mindset of Jesus as man in his humanity. And then verses 9 to 11, it's the Father vindicating him as Lord. And so it's presenting to us here is who Jesus is. God, man, and now Lord reigning at the right hand of the throne of God. So follow along as I read verses 6 through 11. Who, follow, remember, it's follow the mindset of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some other translations would say something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Like I said, there's a real structure to this part of Scripture. Paul in writing this, there's a, a poetic feel to it with the structure that follows it. The first two sections particularly follow the same pattern. He makes four statements about who Jesus is. In these statements, it's a progression from his nature or his being, his form. He moves from that to his character, from character to the action that is taken from that, and then to the fulfillment of it. First in his deity and then his humanity. In part one, we begin in his eternal existence as God. His deity, and at the heart of his mindset, this phrase, he made himself nothing. Some versions it would say he emptied himself. You see, Jesus as God, which is so important what that first phrase is, who being in very nature God, he, he is in the form of God, an important word, um, the amplified version. I, I love going to that old translation sometimes. It's, it's more than a translation. It's a translation, but it's a, it's a paraphrase as well And that the author, in trying to kind of draw out as many nuances of what the Greek underlying scripture says, because sometimes there's just a fullness there we have trouble picking up in English. 
The Amplified Version puts that verse this way. Who, although he existed in the form and unchanging essence of God, as one with him, possessing the fullness of all the divine attributes, the entire nature of deity. Amplified Version tends to be very long passages. And see, he fills it all out. Listen to that again. Jesus, who although he existed in the form and unchanging essence of God, as one with him, possessing the fullness of all the divine attributes, the entire nature of deity. All of that is contained in that little phrase, who being in very nature God. There is no doubt what is being declared about who Jesus Jesus, the pre-existent God. In the Trinity, He is the Son. In eternity, He is the Son at the hand of the Father, waiting to be obedient to the Father. And in this, in this passage, we read that God Himself, being in very nature with God, that the son, the second phrase is, what is his character, what is his attitude? He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something that, was, that he was to hang on to. He emptied himself. And it's not why a lot of translations don't use that term, he emptied himself, although it is a, it is a fitting translation. The problem is when we picture something being emptied, it's taking something out. But Jesus never took anything out of his godliness, of his deity. It's not that he set his deity aside. Rather, he took on the nature and the form of man. In fact, it's really the progression here. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be hang on to. His attitude of heart, and it's really the picture of who God is. The very heart of God is on display in what takes place here. The very heart of God is the expression of this love, that he did not look to his own interests, that he didn't just look to the continuation of himself, but he looked at his creation and in love towards his creation, he said, I need to move, I need to act towards them, and that he took or he took on himself the nature of a servant. He made himself nothing because he didn't consider equality with God something to be hanged, hung onto for his own good or for his own uh, reputation or for his own uh, part or equality to be used to his own advantage is how the NIV puts it. It's important to understand that in the context of Philippians as well. Because what Paul is saying, remember he said, look to the mindset of Jesus for how you are to act towards each other. If you look back up, and we didn't read the beginning of the passage, just go back and read the beginning of this chapter. If you go back up to verse 1, Paul is in a place where he's encouraging among the Philippian church an attitude of humility, an attitude of service, an attitude of compassion towards each other. And he says, if, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. And Jesus is therefore set up as the example to what Paul has just called us to do. Looking not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the encouragement of Jesus in his pre-existent glory. He did not consider with equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he makes himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, becoming one of us. See, he looks himself to the interests of this world. And he takes on humanity. How does he do that? How does he remain fully God and also become fully man? I mean, there are books and books written on this. I'm going to give you three quotes just to help us get our, our mind out on it a little bit. Dan Spader, who I mentioned earlier, he says this, that Jesus veiled his deity to such an extent that his humanity um, he veiled his deity to such an extent that his humanity would be fully expressed. Right? So he veils his deity so that humanity may be in its fullness expressed. Spader loves to use a, uh, an illustration or a metaphor or something to try to explain this where he talks about a credit card. He talks about Jesus has the MasterCard, the Master's card. He has a God card a credit card in which he has all the attributes of God to his credit. And what he does when he empties himself is he says, I'm going to take the credit card and put it away. It's never going to be used. It's not that he doesn't have it. It's just that he chooses to say, I will never use it so that his full humanity can be expressed. Because if he ever dips into the credit card and uses his deity then his humanity becomes less than humanity. Charles Ryrie put it this way. He says, never less than God, talking about Jesus, Jesus is never less than God. He chose to live his life never more than man. Get that? Never less than God. He chose to live his life never more than a man. See, fully God, but Jesus, in his interest towards us, in his interest towards those that he brought into being and he cares for and need to be redeemed, he says, I will, I will so put away my deity to live his life that way so that I will never live more than being a man. Bruce Weir put it this way, his deity was unexpressed so that his humanity could be fully expressed. See the theme that all these men are trying to get us to? They're all saying he's fully God, but he, he put it away. He chose to not live that way and took rather on himself humanity. Last one. Jesus refused to rely upon his divine nature to make obedience easier for him. Catch that? Jesus's, Jesus refused to rely upon his divine nature make obedience easier for him. That's an important concept for us to grab hold of. 
Because you see, we can fall into the trap of thinking, well, you know, it was easy for Jesus. You know, when we think about Jesus living as a man without sin, we say, well, yeah, of course he could do that. He's God. But what Paul is expressing here is he gave that all up. He put it aside. He veiled it. He left it unexpressed. He refused to rely upon his divine nature to make his human obedience any easier for him. I mean, that's what was taking place at the great temptation. That Jesus, as he began and came out into his ministry, look back into Matthew 4 and to Mark 3. As you look back in those passages, Jesus came and he wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. At the end of those 40 days, Satan comes to him and tempts him. And what is he tempting him with? Make these stones into breads. You know, go up on the high temple and cast yourself down so the angels will pick you up. He's saying, dip into your deity. You know, just for this one moment, Jesus, go and dip into deity and, and make the physical pain go away. Make the path to your popularity just so much more easy. Jesus, you know, if you'll bow down to me and worship in this moment, and again, it's a question of his deity because Satan is saying, if only I can get God to submit to me. And he's tempting him and saying, Jesus, just for this moment, would you dip into your deity so that you would become less than human? And the problem with that is, if he is less than human, then our salvation is less than complete. See, our salvation, our redemption, our atonement is fully based on that Christ, as the second Adam, dies for us. That as a fully human man, he was able to take our place. Hebrews says, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to, make the, or he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus had to say, I will never dip into my deity in order to make my humanity what it fully needs to be, complete so that I can fully be the Savior, I can fully be the sacrifice for the sins of all people. What amazes me in that is we also have to remember that the implication of Jesus fully living out his human life here, he had the same resources that all of us have to live in this life. What were the resources that Jesus called upon to live in obedience to his Father? He had the Spirit. Spirit fell upon him, came upon him, and he looks to the Spirit for direction through prayer. How often in the Gospels are you seeing Jesus retreating into prayer? Why? Because he needed the help and support of his Father. He needed the direction of the Father. He needed to know which way to go and, and plan for what was coming next. He needed the help and the guidance of, of the one who was able to give it to him. He had the Spirit, he had prayer, and he had the Word of God. I mean, in his temptation in the wilderness, where did he keep going? Back to Scripture. He kept saying, isn't it written? 
And that was his refutation. We all have the same resources that Jesus had so that in our humanity, we are able to become and to follow him. And as Romans says, that we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. This is our salvation. This is what he is calling us to be and inviting us into. To become like him, to walk with him. And so to model him in this world. Why the church is called the representation of Christ in this world. And as he does this, he overcame and we too are able to overcome. And so as God, he puts aside his deity and as a servant, he is made human. Taking the nature of a servant being made in human likeness. That word form again. He takes up the form of humanity. So he is God who takes on humanity. And then we see his mindset in his humanity in verse 8. And being found in appearance or form or nature as a man, fully man, he humbled himself. Once again, he puts Others' interests first. The definition of humility. Humility is not self-abasement. Humility is not saying, oh, you know, I am nothing. I'm worthless. I, I can't do anything well. It's, you know, oh, yeah, everybody else is bad. That's not humility. In fact, it's a false humility, which is sickening to most of us. Humility, rather, is when we set aside our rights, when we understand who we are and what our strengths are, when we are willing to set aside our rights, we're willing to set aside our might for someone else. Humility is not putting ourselves down, it's lifting others up. It's what Paul is calling the church to up in verse 3. It's where he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Jesus' humility, his action was obedience, to live without sin to the point of shedding blood, even to the point of death. In obedience to his Father, putting himself lower so that others might be lifted up. And that fulfillment of all of this is even death on a cross, the most horrendous of physical deaths that was possible. And Christ humbles himself to obedience, which is going to result in his death, a self-sacrificing death, though. That was a self-sacrificing love that the world might be saved. This is our Jesus, our God, our servant, King. The author of Hebrews says, So let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endures the cross. Endures the cross, scorning its shame that he might sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what's the joy that he sees? Where is joy? The church is his joy. The men and the women of this world who will embrace him in salvation and accept his gift of eternal life that it comes through the atonement of his shed blood, that's the joy that was set before him. And he endured it all. He gave himself up in humility to become in appearance and finally as a man, as a servant, to endure the death on a cross. Who is this man? He is Christ, fully God, 
He is Jesus, fully man. Then this great hymn ends with, and he is our Lord exalted because of his life, his death, and his resurrection again. That God vindicates him. God accepts the sacrifice. God says justification is now possible because the final sacrifice has been made for all of us. He is Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name. It's interesting to do a study on what is that name and really what boils down to the name is Lord. He is Lord Almighty. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our Jesus. And how real is your Jesus? Do you embrace him in his full humanity? Because that's our model. We look through the Gospels and we follow his method and his message and we are able to embrace it because he calls us to become like him. Because he is the one who has walked in this earth in obedience and gives us a sacrifice that we can be forgiven and brought into union with God and his spirit dwells within. Jamie, you and the team can come back up. You see, that great application for us is that we ask the Spirit to open our eyes afresh to see who our Jesus is and what it is to truly be humans who are in relationship with the living God. And remember why Paul takes us to this hymn. He takes us to this hymn because he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. What was his mindset? He said, I'm willing to not grasp my deity, to hang on to it for my own worth, but rather I will put it aside and embrace the, the humanity that I am called to become. It's looking not to his own interests, and that's what we are called to, to look not to our own interests, not hang on to our own glory. I mentioned Dan Spader and some of his teaching earlier, one of, this, one of the implications of the doctrine of life of Jesus is that whole implication that we have the resources. We have the resources to accomplish what Jesus accomplished. For we have the same spirit, we have the same word of God, and we have prayer. It's all of ours. We need to look at his life because that's the model for us. In Romans 5, we're reminded that we are reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. And then he gives a very interesting phrase, and he says, how much more are we saved through his life? We rightly focus on his death. It's the heart of our atonement. But in our walk with God, with our walk with Christ, we need to examine his life. We need to see how he lived. We need to see how he drew disciples. We need to see how he uh, walked among this earth. In response to this today, we're coming to the Lord's table. I trust on your way in that you were able to pick up some of those little cups. We're going to sing in a moment. If you didn't pick one up, you can go out to the hall and pick one up in preparation. 
This is a fitting response for us today. It's a time for those who accepted God's incredible gift of salvation to give a thanks again for the death of Jesus that reconciled to God. But it's also a time for us to consider in our lives with God, in our life, in our relationship with others in the body, to examine that. Say, Jesus, where would you be shaping me? Where would you be calling me? Where would you be taking me in this journey with you? As we come, the Apostle Paul in Corinthians says that those who come to this table are to examine themselves. It is for those who have accepted the gift of eternal life. That's why baptism is so closely connected with the Lord's table. Baptism is that first declaration. It's that, that uh, testimony that says, I've accepted the gift of eternal life. So those who have accepted God's gift of eternal life, we come, we're going to take some bread, we're going to take a cup. We're going to remember his body and his death here today. But Paul says we should examine ourselves this morning. We should take some time and really look and say, Jesus, how's my relationship going? How's my relationship with you? I can give thanks for that relationship, but is there something today that he needs to refine in you? And you just give it to him in confession. We ask, how's my relationship with others? This is the call of Philippians. Look not only to our own interests, but the interests of others. Would Christ call you to be made right with someone else? I'm going to encourage us that as we sing the first couple of verses of the next hymn, that you take these two verses and use them as a time just to prepare your heart. So we're not going to take the cup yet. We've got it ready, but Jamie and the team is going to lead us in just two verses of the next hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You can feel free to sing along and allow those words to be your meditation, or you can feel free to be quiet and just ask God's Spirit to fill your heart and to see where He would want to take you this morning. And after we sing those couple of verses, I'm going to come again and lead us just in prayer and a preparation to take those elements that we look at what Christ has done for us.